Welcome to Sea to Shining Sea, a podcast on the American Discovery Trail and transcontinental walking across the USA from coast to coast. I'm Dave Whitson. I first spoke with you a few months ago when I released the first episode of this podcast. And if you haven't listened to it yet, that's the place to start, as you'll get to learn about the American Discovery Trail from three of its early trailblazers. While more than four months have passed since then, I haven't just been lazing around. Indeed, I got my first taste of the American Discovery Trail, walking the southern route between Cincinnati and Denver. I anticipate that I'll share some experiences from that walk in future episodes. For now, though, my sights are set further east, to the state of Delaware, where the majority of thru-hikers on the American Discovery Trail begin their westward walk. And, as I've learned more, this is entirely appropriate. Delaware, it turns out, is the first state, and Lewis, the town closest to the ADT's starting point, is the first town in that first state. So why shouldn't it be the first stop on the ADT? I will pause to admit that I recognize now I broke protocol, making this the focus of the podcast's second episode. Oh well. In this episode, I speak with two people about Delaware. Up first, you'll hear from Terry Schuart, a resident of Delaware who section hiked the American Discovery Trail through her state. She describes the on-the-ground experience. After that, Denise Clemens, an expert on Delaware's cultural history and the town of Lewis, offers a brilliant overview of the state's key moments, along with a few dishes to watch out for. The American Discovery Trail may only span some 45 miles in Delaware, but there's still a lot worth knowing about it as you approach that section. And I'm here to share it with you, courtesy of Terry and Denise. So let's jump right into it. Thanks for joining me. I'm speaking with Terry Schuhart from Ocean View, Delaware, as I start my virtual walk on the American Discovery Trail in Delaware. I get to do so with an actual resident of Delaware. Terry, thanks for joining me to talk about the American Discovery Trail as it moves through your state. Hey, thanks. It's nice to be here. Um, what is your background with the American Discovery Trail? What drew you to it, and how do you approach your walk on it? Um, I actually walked um, only 86 miles. I started from the start point in Delaware and finished at the, at the Chesapeake Bay Bridge um, in Maryland. Gotcha. So I actually did a section hike, so I, I covered those miles over eight days. So I was lucky my husband actually would drop me off at the beginning, and I would call him or text him and say, come pick me up. So <laughs> I did it. So it was very convenient, and he just found something to do as we traversed across the state. Yeah, that's nice. Full service support while you're walking. Yeah, great. Why Why did you decide to do it? Like, why follow the American Discovery Trail? I've been a lifelong walker. Mm -hmm. So I've done lots of distance walking. I've done five marathons that I actually walked. Hmm. I've done um, walked a lot of half marathons. And I had just completed walking 500 miles on the Camino Santiago mm -hmm. on the route in September of 2017. Mm -hmm. And when I got back, I was in such good shape. And even during the, um, there's a lot of forms 
Facebook groups and things for the Camino. And that was the first that I heard someone mention the American Discovery Trail. And then looking into it, I found out, oh my gosh, it is right here, only within 10, 15 miles from my house. Yeah. So that's why I decided, you know, I, I was still in pretty good shape that I would just do it as a section. Yeah, what a cool thing to discover. Yeah, yeah. So this is an interesting comparison then, because you had just done a through hike. You had just been walking for better part of a month in Spain and, you know, sleeping on the route, waking up and just sort of living it constantly day after day. And then you have this section hiking experience. What was different? What felt really different about it? And did you find anything advantageous? Because, you know, one of the things that's interesting is, you know, the ADT promoters, they really want people to think about the possibilities of section hiking because it's so hard to be able to do the through hike and to have the time and resources to do it. Lots of people can section hike. So what did you notice about that approach and what did you like about it? Well, it was definitely easier (laughs) because I didn't carry a backpack. And so that was the best. I could go home and sleep in my own bed, which was great. Yeah. And I also got to choose what days I was going to walk. So I didn't do them one day after the other. So I, you know, I did it. I think there was one time I did two days in a row. But, you know, if I saw the weather forecast wasn't good, (laughs) I had the option not to do it. So I didn't have that luxury when I walked in Spain. Yeah, that's a good deal. Yeah. Now, the difference, though, you know, I think we were I was spoiled on the Camino because the Camino is so well marked. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're pretty much just following yellow arrows. And the ADT, that was a little bit of a challenge. There were only a couple signs that I saw along the way, and it was a little awkward with the turn-by-turn directions. So that would be the difference doing it on the American Discovery Trail. Yeah, it's definitely a big change. In my case, I've been looking at a GPS a lot while walking, whereas, like you said, in, in Spain, you just you don't need any of that. And maybe in time it'll it'll get there, but it is you know it's a lot of ground to cover with waymarks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before we talk about the route in your state specifically, tell me about your state because you're talking to a lifelong West Coaster. I live in Oregon. I know where Delaware is, but other than that, I'm shockingly ignorant. So what are well, what what, <laughs> what are a few things that you know every American should know about Delaware? Well, Delaware's biggest claim to the fame is we are the first state. So we're the first state that actually ratified the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So that's the nickname first state. We have, I actually was born and raised and lived in Pennsylvania for most of my life. Okay. So I've only been in Delaware. Uh, We bought a vacation home here because that's the other good thing about Delaware is we have some beautiful beaches right on the Atlantic Ocean. So that's the other thing. And so I didn't move here full time until 2017. So we're also a tax-free (laughs) That's That's part of the reason why we're here, too. A lot of people are starting to come here to retire. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't pay any sales tax, and our property tax is really low. And we are also one of the biggest chicken-producing states. I think we are the highest broiler chicken in the United States. Nice. And we are very flat, (laughs) which is a... Huge challenge to me for training because I also went back to Spain. I just recently returned from my second Camino walk. And for training, um, we do not have hills. Mm. So I actually had to leave the state to actually train to find places to hike that had hills. We have a, a bridge that I would go up and down over and over. 
that was my only hill. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> so it's very, very flat. Well, I was going to ask you about that because when we transition here to the, the route of the American Discovery Trail through Delaware, everything I've read, and I've read a bunch of trail journals, the recurring themes are flat, paved, and a whole lot of farmland for these. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Is that that's consistent with your experience? Yeah, that's consistent. Yeah, I don't even think there was any, there's no hills. So, yes, it's all flat. Flat walking. There's one section where you go through a state forest, but still it's a paved road. Gotcha. So mostly rural and a lot of chicken. <laughs> um, chickens buildings. Um, you'll see them all over the place. Yeah. So sometimes the odor's a little, little much. Depends on what time of year you're walking around here or riding bikes. Yeah. Um, it can be pretty intense. All right. Well, it's good to have warning on that front. And it is, you know, for people who are starting off in Delaware, it is different from what a lot of people experience in Spain, where their first day might be crossing the Pyrenees. And maybe it's a little bit nicer to be able to walk your way into shape on uh, those flat early days. The route starts in Cape Enlopen State Park. And so I just keep I keep thinking about Cape Enlopen, <laughs> you know, like never having been there. But I know that that's where I'm going to start. Give me a preview. What's it like? What am I going to see there? Actually, it's one of my favorite state parks in Delaware. They have a lot of trails. It's right on the ocean, but even within the state park, lots of access to um, wetlands and many trails. They have camping there. It's a big attraction for a lot of the coastal birds. Hmm. Um, there's even a section of the beach that they close off for several months because of some rare nesting bird but a very beautiful place. But it's also part of history. During World War II, is actually a fort, Fort Miles. Huh. And it was used as part of our defense. They still have some World War II observation towers where they used to keep their eye out for German boats. So, And there's bunkers. Hmm. And they actually have turned it in, part of it, to a museum. And they've brought in um, some of the artillery parks. They actually have the gun barrel from the USS Missouri huh. that was part of the Japanese surrender. So it's actually a really interesting state park. So many attractions for a lot of people. So the actual start of the American Discovery Trail is right at one of the bunkers. Oh, cool. So it's a pretty neat way to start your trip. And so the Cape Enlopen is right next to the town of, of Lewis. And is that kind of just consistent with this whole section through the beach of, you know, another sort of lively vacation hub and a place a lot of people congregate to in the summer? Yeah, and it's actually on the one side, Rehoboth Beach, which would be even more the draw gotcha. during the um, summertime. And, I, and I'm really happy to hear you pronounced it right. I, I've looked it up. I was, it, was, it was wrong <laughs> in my head the first time, but I, but I checked okay. it. <laughs> and that's a very common thing that people pronounce it right, but it's Lewis, just like the, a person's name. But it, it's definitely more of a year-round town now. So mm -hmm. if you are off-season, you're still going to see a decent amount of people. Mm. Lewis is actually a really pretty town. It's actually the first town in the first state. So it has been around for a while, but it's very, a lot of some Victorian houses, a really nice downtown with shops, and they go pretty much all year round. And then Rehoboth Beach is right there too. And that beach, I live further south at a, a different beach resort, but Rehoboth is definitely more year round than even where I live right now. Gotcha. Lots of things to do. <laughs> Even if you are there in February, far, far from summer. 
yes, you'll find a place to stay and places to eat. It's pretty good. I've been reading there's a, a new rails to trails route that's getting some of the opening parts of this walk from Henlopen to Lewis and beyond off the road and onto a more pedestrian oriented and cyclist oriented approach. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm still walking. Um, <laughs> so yes, and I actually just finally did 10 miles the other day on the Georgetown Lewis Trail which I believe is what the ADT is going to use instead of the where I went. Okay. It's really pretty. It's very scenic. It's an old uh, rail trail. Very nice, which is a good thing because when I did my walk, there was just one really scary crossing that I had to do to cross one of the major highways here. And so I believe this new trail will eliminate that little scary crossing across Route 1. Nice. Is the rail trail, like, complete to Georgetown already? No, they they just opened the second phase. Gotcha. But when I was on it, I could see that I was sort of near where I was when I did the ADT. Great. With other people, as I talk through the route the ADT follows through the state, there's admittedly a lot more to talk about because it covers a lot more miles. So mm-hmm, there's there's mm-hmm. 45 miles or so of the of the ADT through Delaware. And so I think for a lot of through hikers, that'll be three days, maybe maybe two if they're really pushing it on the flat ground. So there's not a ton to unpack there. But if you were to pull out, you know, two, three, four highlights from what you noticed as you walk through, what what would you call attention to? What should we be looking forward to? To me, it's your first glimpse of small-town America. I mean, really tiny towns. Milton is a really pretty town, and actually we're one of the other things that we're known for is Dogfish Head Brewing Company. Okay. It's a really nice brewery that's right there in Milton, and it's very quaint. And even just experiencing starting to see the farmland and open, wide-open spaces, Mm -hmm. it's really nice. I've enjoyed it because we're pretty much on the coast where a lot of the tourists are and whatever, and you don't realize here you are at the ocean, and then just within a few miles, you're you're just out with this big, wide, open farmland, and even part of the track goes through the Redden State Forest, which was new to me. I, I didn't even know we had a state forest. <laughs> and unfortunately, I, picked, I walked in uh, November and December. And I, it was pretty desolate. It's not some place that people are walking mm-hmm. down there, so you're pretty much by your own. And it just happened to be hunting season, so it was a little, <laughs> a little eerie because I could, you know, I saw all the signs posted that hunting was allowed, and then you could occasional gunshots. So not that anybody was near me, but sure. you know, it was just a little eerie being all by yourself out there. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty neat. I'm a city girl. I was born and raised in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was just a big, wide, you know, eye-opener about how, how beautiful America is, you know, mm-hmm. just at least a little piece of it. And yeah, what you said about that change going from the coast, I mean, it's one of the really neat things about that distance walking experience is just how much the, the land, the world around you can change just over a few hours of walking. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's really striking. Is there recognition of this route? Like as you were walking over these different days, did people know what you were doing? No one ever, no. (laughs) And I wondered sometimes some of the very rural routes, what they really thought Mm -hmm. of me. And I didn't really have any encounters with people. And maybe that's the difference too about doing section hiking. I mean, when I walked the Camino, you were 
there were others that were walking and then there were, you know, you, you had to stop places to eat and sleep and you got to really interact with people where by what I did, I mean, yeah, I wondered what people thought of me coming down this road, Mm -hmm. you know, a single woman, no bad. I mean, I just, it looks, probably look strange, but I never really talked to anyone. So I'm not even sure people recognize that their health is actually on the route. Yeah. And there's not a lot of signs, so <laughs> I'm not sure. And I don't read about it, you know, and that's funny because I live here and I, I didn't really learn about this through advertising here. Mm-hmm. You know, I only learned about it through that other group about the Camino. You were only learned about the walk in your home state by reading about Spain. Yes, exactly. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. You mentioned the the broiled chicken before. So there's that. Uh And what what other um, Delaware-specific experiences might people try to partake in as they walk? If you're a beer drinker, you're really in Milton, you 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 really should stop at Dogfish Head Brewing. Yeah. And because we're on the coast, it's a good place maybe before you leave and start. Seafood is a big thing here, obviously. Mm-hmm. And we're also a, a weird food. We're also known for scrapple, which is pretty much like a pig's inside. You know what I mean? Like all the scraps. <laughs> yeah. And is that is that like genuinely good or is it just like um i well i'm a vegetarian so you don't want to know from me but i i know my mom loved it but it's um we just uh recently one of the towns little towns you go through is bridgeville yeah and actually they have an annual apple scrapple festival so some people swear by it uh i don't know well it's it's nice to make use of every part of the animal, right? So, exactly. So yeah. That's, that's yeah. good. Well, my last question, Terry, and you've alluded to this, so you might just sort of revisit some of your earlier thoughts, but I'm still curious. How did walking through your, your home state affect or change your view of it? This is you, You've mentioned that there's all of these places that you had never encountered before. So it seems pretty cool to be able to um, freshly experience your your new home in this way. Yeah, and I mean, just even to understand more about people around us. I mean, we're, Delaware also is so small, we only have three counties. Hmm. So it's interesting. But just even from a political perspective, I always hear how we're different, like mm-hmm. the people who live here at the coast compared to the people right outside. And you can see it, you know, when you're walking through, you can see they have a different lifestyle with the rural and um, smaller towns. Mm-hmm. I'm One of the big things, we, to go anywhere, we, we head towards Maryland um, mm-hmm. to get out. So I now spend a lot of time, you know, if I'm traveling to Baltimore or D.C., I'm in my car, and it's, like, incredible to me to know we're not exactly on the roads, you know, that you walked, but I'm around the area and it just impresses me every time that, wow, you know, <laughs> I walked, you know, all the yeah. way here, you know, which is crazy. So it really makes you feel proud to be an American. You know, you really get to see so many different places and so many different people. I really wish I could go further. <laughs> is that is that possible down the road? Are you are you thinking about getting to the other side of that bridge? Well, I, I like the idea of continuing on and making it to Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. but I'm obviously going to have to find a different way because towards the end, when I did get to the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, 
I mean, that's a lot of to ask for my husband, who <laughs> then was driving 40 miles, you know, and then yep. trying to kill time while I walked. I think there's still so much more to see. And I'm really impressed. I, I love following everybody else's journey. And it sounds like it's such a difference once you get into the country. Yeah. For me, it'll probably be just BC yeah. if I get there. Denise Clemens is the author of Lewis, Delaware, The First Town in the First State, as well as A Culinary History of Southern Delaware. And she also writes a regular column called Cape Flavors for the Cape Gazette newspaper. Thanks for joining me to talk about Delaware, Denise. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you, and uh, especially just given your extensive expertise, as the titles of those two books uh, would suggest. So could you tell me a little bit more just about your background in Delaware and your engagement with historical and cultural affairs? Like, what drew you into it, and what kind of work are you involved in? Well, it's interesting. Many of the people that live in what's Sussex County, which is the southernmost county in Delaware, are transplants. Very few of us actually were born and raised here, and I'm Mm. one of those transplants. I started coming to Delaware in 1998 and moved here full-time in 2005. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I did was become certified as a Delaware Master Gardener, so I became quite familiar with the flora of the area. And I then shortly thereafter started writing my cooking column for the local newspaper. So I became intrigued by local ingredients and cultural traditions. Mm -hmm. And then I'm a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution. And there's a very vibrant chapter here in the town in which I live, Lewis. And that's how we ended up writing the book, which is a history of Lewis and Southern Delaware and a walking tour of the region. And most lately, I've been involved with the Lewis Historical Society, where I've been charged with organizing their collections and archives. So I've got my hand in a lot of things (laughs) and (laughs) enjoy it immensely because it's it's a charming place to live. That's great. So let's dig into the historical end of things first. As the subtitle of of your book mentions, and really anything about Lewis mentions, the town is known as the first town in the first state. And so I want to talk about each of those first so I can understand them better. What makes Lewis the first town? Well, Lewis was the site of the first European settlement in Delaware. So the Dutch settlers in June of 1631 were hoping to find an opportunity for whaling, Mm -hmm. and they settled a small settlement that they called Zwanendale for Valley of the Swans. And they shortly after they arrived and built a stockade and some really primitive settlement, they were wiped out by the Native Americans, the Lenape tribe. And so subsequently, there was another colony that was settled by Mennonites. And then the English took over and the Dutch (laughs) took over again. And then the English and then William Penn. And when everything got settled and all of the land grants that were offered by various English royalty, it turned out that Penn couldn't have Delaware for Pennsylvania and Maryland couldn't have Delaware for Maryland because <laughs> Lewis has had been a settlement before either of those entities existed. Hmm. And so we became the reason that Delaware was allowed to persist as a state in and of itself. 
And huh. it's a tiny little place, only three counties, the northernmost county, um, Newcastle County. If you'll notice, the map has that arced top to it, and that was how they decided the boundary dispute. So we'll huh. have an arc at the top, a more or less straight line down the left, and then a straight line out to the water from west to east. And that's how Delaware got its shape and all of the land grants that were subsequently argued and decided and Lewis was the reason that Delaware became a state. <laughs> I hope the rest of the state is appropriately grateful to Lewis. Of for that. course they are. <laughs> they, they all come down to Lewis to go to the beach. So that's how they express their appreciation. And then the first state part of it yeah. comes because of the fact that Lewis was the first to sign the newly enacted Constitution <laughs> for the United States of America. And that was an interesting feature because many of the larger states, which had a lot of dissent within their representatives, and they weren't sure whether they wanted to go along with this union of many states as opposed to remaining semi-autonomous, mm -hmm. Delaware, because we were so small, realized we can't afford to do that. We do not have enough natural resources. We don't have a large enough population. If we're forced to be in an organization of states where the autonomy is stronger than the dependencies, mm. we're not going to survive. The other thing that happened, and the reason we were so quick to sign, was because everyone agreed. And there wasn't a lot of, well, I don't want to do this, well, we should, and then debate. It was, yeah, let's go do this. So that's how we became the first town in the first state. So was Delaware also then like a hotbed of revolution, given how quick they were to sign on to the Constitution? Or, or what were the prevailing attitudes in the area as the revolution unfolded? There was some of each. So if you look at Delaware at the bottom and going west, there was a, a lot of agriculture and a lot of Tory sentiment during the revolution because they were landed wealthy mm -hmm. and doing very, very well. Up in the north, in the Wilmington region, um, there was some Tory sentiment because these were merchants and tradespeople, and they were initially unwilling to try to separate from Britain, wanting instead to maintain their trading relations. But then as things got sort of untidy with the British and the <laughs> taxing situation became unpleasant, there was a lot more support for the revolutionary principles. And in fact, the Delaware Regiment was called the Delaware Blue Hens. Mm -hmm. And if you've read any of the accounts of the Revolutionary War and Washington's favorites, the Delaware Blue Hens was one of his favorite because they were brave and they always showed up when they were supposed to show up. <laughs> And in fact, there was a battalion, or I don't know if it's a battalion or a regiment from southern Delaware that were actually assigned to Washington's flying camp, which was the group of soldiers that were, would be ready at the drop of a hat to go to the next place and set up and fight. So in the end, we were very, very supportive um, of the revolutionary cause. And then circling back to Lewis, you mentioned all of those different cultural influences in its early history, the Dutch, Mennonite, English. Um, you mentioned some of those early foundations that were established in this town that was launched almost 400 years ago. Is any of that visible to the visitor today? Is the visitor going to see physical remains of early Lewis that have been preserved? Is that mishmash of cultures reflected in the Lewis of today? I have to say yes, to some extent. One of the oldest houses in Delaware, still in its original location, is physically located still in Lewis. 
there's a replica of a municipal building called the Zwanendale building that's here, that they built a replica here, so you can see that Dutch influence. Clearly, the British influence is seen most notably because of our participation in the War of 1812, and then there's all this modern patina that's been laid <laughs> on top of that with modern structures. But the town of Lewis, you can see some of those early influences, both in the architecture and in the traditions in the community. And like many places where there have been an influx of immigrants, we must have one of every denomination of a religious order. <laughs> so we've got the Baptists, we've got the Methodists, we've got Presbyterians, Episcopalians, um, African Methodists. We've got all of the denominations of religious affiliation here as well. Mm -hmm. That's really neat. That makes for a pretty dynamic place culturally. Right, right. And then the other thing about Delaware, which was a benefit in my personal opinion, is that the influence of the Quakers happened to be one that kept us out of becoming a vibrant place for any sort of enslaved populations. Hmm. So we were one of the earliest states to declare slavery illegal, and the sale of slaves to other states that were not anti-slavery mm. became illegal. So even before the Civil War, the number of enslaved people still living in Delaware was very, very, very small. But it must have been complicated managing that given its border location between the North and the South. Did that create conflict um, within Delaware or tension with slaveholding states further to the South? Well, the people that owned slaves and wanted to sell them or work them in other parts of the eastern seaboard where slavery was acceptable mm -hmm. were not real thrilled. And there's a very notorious character named Patty Cannon, and she was on the border between Maryland and Delaware, and she was a notorious slave catcher. So she would actually find free black men and women and sell them as slaves. And she was just a, one of the most reprehensible people imaginable, but she was very clever and very effective. So there was a lot of tension from a lot of sources that way. Yeah. And yet there are still family names in the area where you'll have black families with that name, last name as well as white families with the same last name. And they've gotten past the part in the past that was so awful. Yeah. How common, maybe this is outside your purview, how common is the phenomenon of female slave catchers? Very rare. That's probably why she was so <laughs> notorious. But she was apparently just heartless and unafraid of anything and very wealthy as a result, of course, and very cruel. So, yeah, we leave those bad things to men usually. <laughs> yes, yeah, we, we have the market cornered on that. Lewis takes pride in the first town in the first state, and uh, we've talked about that. The potential downside is people from the outside looking in might think Lewis peaked 200 plus years ago and not much has happened since. Is there anything that you would highlight where Lewis has sort of re-entered the world stage and had something of, of impact subsequent to the ratification of the Constitution? Well, we were an important stronghold during the War of 1812, during the British bombardment. Uh, the only thing lost was, I think, a dog and a chicken. <laughs> and um, during the Second World War, Fort Miles 
was built here in what is now the Cape Henlopen State Park. Mm-hmm. And we had submarine lookout towers. It was a highly fortified encampment hmm. um, during the Second World War. And the folks that have created the Fort Miles Foundation, which is now a very successful nonprofit, have rebuilt many of those fortifications and brought in examples of some of the armament. You can take a tour of the bunkers and hmm. really get a sense of what it was like to be there during the Second World War. So that's kind of how we've kept up with history. Some of the notable people in base exploration are from Delaware. Ted Freeman was one of the first astronaut members of the astronaut corps who was killed during the line of active duty, Hmm. came from Lewis. The company ILC, or International Latex Corporation, responsible for creating all the spacesuits that were used in Apollo and Space Shuttle, and they continue to do the spacesuits for NASA. And then, of course, DuPont, up in the northern end of the state, were instrumental in a whole chemical empire that began with gunpowder, of all things, and then, of course, branched out into a variety of of things that we would recognize today from Kevlar to fertilizers. So that, too, is something that has brought us into the modern era. Lewis was the site of Menhaden fishing. It is a really tiny, oily bait fish that was essential to the cosmetics, paints, solvents, lubricant industry. There's no trace of it left except I think my cat can smell it <laughs> when, we, when we drive nearby. But it was uh, one of the most successful fish processing plants on the eastern seaboard. We used to have a doxy clam factory, a lot of agricultural enterprises from peaches to strawberries to all kinds of canned fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. So Delaware just keeps going. Um, (laughs) Agriculture is big business, and we've invited a lot of industry into especially the more northern regions. Mm -hmm. And most famously now, we are the home of Dogfish Head Brewery. (laughs) I've heard about that. Yeah, okay. So Sam started with a rusted bucket and is now a subsidiary of the uh, Boston Brewing Company or Sam Adams family of beers. Mm -hmm. And that began in Lewis, and now he has an outpost in Milton. And I think a lot of people who live in Delaware pay attention to both the agricultural end of things and the whole farm-to-table and organic food movement. There's a very high percentage of high-end restaurants, Mm -hmm. and a lot of tourism. Because we border on the eastern seaboard, our beaches are gorgeous and very attractive to fishermen and sunbathers and sun worshippers across the board. (laughs) Yeah, you've transitioned really smoothly into the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, which is your expertise in the culinary history of Southern Delaware. And you've talked about the agriculture, the sort of the ethos behind uh, a lot of this. So maybe I'll I'll go more directly. Could you please explain Scrapple to me? (laughs) Okay, the best way to define Scrapple is to say everything but the oink. So the genesis of Scrapple is extremely practical. Mm -hmm. Imagine you've got a farm and you've been raising crops all summer and you've just brought in the final harvest. Mm -hmm. You've fed all the stuff that nobody else wanted to eat to the pigs that you were fattening. And now it's fall and you're going to slaughter your pigs and basically 
butcher them and you're going to salt some, you're going to smoke some, you're going to eat some fresh. Mm-hmm. And then there, so you're going to have a bunch of people on your farm help you do that. But there's some parts of the pig that are highly nutritious, but not necessarily pretty to look at. So while you're harvesting your pigs, slaughtering your pigs, what you do is you take all the organ meat, mm-hmm. the brains, the head, the liver, the heart, and you pop them into a cauldron with water and you simmer them, simmer them, simmer them. Now everybody's working around the farmyard. Mm -hmm. And then when that's all done, you pick off all the meat and transfer it into a liquid and you thicken that with cornmeal Mm -hmm. and add a lot of spices. And then you put it into loaf pans to harden or not really harden, but sort of gel up. Mm-hmm. And then when you want to eat it, you cut it into thin slices and cook it in some sort of fat, whether that's bacon grease or butter. And you serve it with maple syrup or ketchup on a sandwich. Huh. And it is either adored or detested delicacy. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like Bam. It, you either yeah. love it or you don't ever want to see it again. And the tradition comes primarily from German traditions where they, the Pennsylvania Dutch in particular, their version of Scrapple, they use blood, the pig blood as well. Mm-hmm. And it's more like a blood sausage that you'd find in England. And they use different spice profiles. But the Delaware version is very clean. I've actually made it, and it's really delicious if it's done right. Hmm. Um, and we have a, a Scrapple company that's been in business since the 1800s. And every year they have an Apple Scrapple Festival where they <laughs> – it's it's just about the time that apples come into season, but they didn't want to leave out the scrapple, so they have a big party for a couple of days and serve you all the scrapple you could enjoy. I got to say that name is misleading. I think about fruit when I hear scrapple. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad I can go into this with eyes wide open. That's right. So setting aside scrapple, and you might encourage people to try it, and I, I would understand that, but what's another dish or a, a first dish that you would encourage anyone visiting Delaware to experience that's sort of reflective of uh, Delaware's culinary history? The short and affectionate name for it is Slicks and Chicks. Okay. So Delaware entered the poultry broiler industry purely by accident when a woman who usually ordered 50 new chicks every year to replace those of her laying hens that died over the season. And she was inadvertently sent 500 of them. And she decided that in order to survive and make enough money to cover the cost of feed, she'd have to sell them before they matured to full size and wait for their eggs. And so she started selling these, what they were called broiler. They were very young, very Mm -hmm. tender. And at the time that this went on, Everyone thought chicken was a horrible, horrible thing to try to eat because it was usually stringy and old because you waited huh. till it stopped laying eggs or it was the rooster who was just getting too mean. And so it became a delicacy. In restaurants in New York City, it was more expensive to have a chicken than it was to have oysters or lobster. And so she started the broiler industry, which is still very, very successful here in Delaware today. You can drive along the highway and you're ahead of you is a truck loaded with cages full of chickens on their way. Hmm. And the other thing that we do is that it's actually called chicken and dumplings. But in Delaware, the dumplings aren't little fat balls. They're almost looks like lasagna noodles cut lengthwise into maybe thirds or fourths. So they're, they're long, narrow, thin 
flat noodles. And so the chicken is stewed and the sauce is creamy and the dumplings are cooked in the sauce so the starch they give off thickens it even more. And we call it Slicks and Chicks. So, <laughs> so chicken and dumplings is one of the biggest ones. And, of course, any kind of seafood in Delaware, mm-hmm. crab cakes. Our crab cakes are different. We don't put breadcrumbs on the outside the way Baltimore does. Mm. So little, little things like that. But I would say chicken and dumplings is a, a must-do. Gotcha. I would not go for muskrat, which is <laughs> a traditional dish, because the muskrat has a different name. It's also called swamp rat. <laughs> it's not a delicious dish, although there are very, very many people who think that is the most wonderful thing they've ever eaten. But So <laughs> it's available, but not a delicacy. It's kind of on the order of squirrel. Yeah, swamp rat is not good for the marketing profile. So. <laughs> no, it's not at all. <laughs> the last question I want to ask you is one about, it comes out of your book, and I got to admit, so I'm a history teacher. I've read a bunch of different kinds of historical books. I've never read a culinary history. And so when I was reading through your book for this, I really enjoyed it. And I was I was surprised, you know, just it caught me off guard. It's a blind spot for me. And one of the things that I was really struck by was the appendix in your book in which you talk about how cookbooks tell our stories. And so I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that, zooming out, about the story that Delaware's cookbooks tell about it. Okay, so pretty much follows in line with American cookbooks in general. Mm -hmm. When the European settlers first came here, the cookbooks that they used were the ones that they brought with them primarily from the United Kingdom, Mm -hmm. Britain. And then the first couple of cookbooks that were, quote, printed in America were those very same cookbooks, either plagiarized or reprinted. (laughs) And in fact, you will find rampant plagiarism in the early cookbook selections Hmm. from the middle 1700s into the early 1800s. And it wasn't until one of the first cookbooks that was published in 1796 by Amelia Simmons, where we really got an American cookbook. And that's where we found ingredients that were not European ingredients, whether it was the different kinds of fish, whether it's winter squash, Jerusalem artichokes, things that were not European ingredients. So it begins to tell you, oh, wait a minute, where we are now has different foodstuffs, has different options for us. The other thing that cookbooks tell you is whether or not, and in fact, if you look at southern cookbooks versus northern cookbooks, there are many more recipes that are complicated with lots of steps and lots of time-consuming processes. That's because there were enslaved people to do that work. Jeez. So um, you don't see beaten biscuits in northern cookbooks, but you do see them in southern cookbooks, those kinds of things. And then in Delaware, you start to see, in truth, you see muskrat, you see peaches, you see lima beans, you see all the ingredients that were grown here. You see red winter wheat used in pastries because that was something that was originally cultivated in Delaware where they needed a second crop. And so the red winter wheat was ideal for pastries and really soft, tender baked goods. Hmm. And then the final thing that you see is the evolution of technology and how much people did by knowing already. So the very first cookbook that had a recipe for making bread Mm -hmm. wasn't until the late 1800s Hmm. because 
everybody knew how. <laughs> you, you know, it's like making, you know, everybody knew how. And so you didn't need to write it down. And it wasn't until that late point in time that you saw that, oh, yeah, well, in case you have never made bread before or your mom didn't teach you or the cook didn't do it for you, here's how it is. And then just like everywhere across the country, you'll see this spate of cookbooks that are published by, you know, the Garden Club, the Women's Club, the Bank, the World War II ration cookbooks. And so you can just get such a sense of what was available, what wasn't available, and what was scarce what was plentiful, and how did we approach it. So, yeah, I I have, well, let's just say when we built our house, I had an entire wall devoted to my (laughs) cookbook. I have a few. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Denise, this has been really interesting. I I really appreciate you talking with me, and I've, I've learned a ton from both this conversation and from your books, which are great. Oh, well, thank you, and I wish you all your success on your travels. A 1616 essay, written by the Dutch navigator Cornelis Hendrickson, described Delaware in the following words. He hath discovered certain lands, a bay and three rivers situate between 38 and 40 degrees, and did their trade with the inhabitants, said trade consisting of sables, furs, robes, and other skins. He hath found the said country full of trees, to wit, oaks, hickory, and pines, which trees were in some places covered with vines. He hath seen in the said country bucks and does, turkeys and partridges. He hath found the climate of the said country very temperate, judging it to be as temperate as that of this country, Holland. And I'll add, thanks to Terry and Denise, we now know that we should add Scrapple and Dogfish Head Brewery to that list. That's all for this episode of Sea to Shining Sea. More episodes are coming out over the next couple of months. You can follow and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. You can find me at DaveWitson.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Reach out if you have ideas or suggestions. Special thanks to Terry Schuart and Denise Clemens for joining me in this episode. Denise's two books, A Culinary History of Southern Delaware, and Lewis, Delaware, Historical Highlights and Walking Tour are available online from the Amazons and Barnes and & Nobles of the world. And thanks to you for listening. We're on to Maryland now.